0: Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers
1: like you. Thank you. Welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Rockets join me shortly in our topics this week. A street fight ends. A long tradition continues despite criticism. And will there be criticism of tax breaks for a government move to downtown? We'll try to find out. Plus, of course, roast and toast. But we start with our interview segment and focus on Veterans Day and weekend activities at the World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. This year's event will include a special exhibition titled The Vietnam War, 1945 to 1975. Here to talk about that and all the events is Dr. Matt Naylor, president of the World War I Museum. Dr. Naylor, welcome back to Ruckus. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. So the end of World War I played a role in establishing what is now called Veterans Day, but originally it was called Armistice Day.
2: Yes, it was. You know, it was now 101 years ago that the armistice was signed, that the war, at least on the Western Front, came to an end, and this great uh, um, end to such a tragic uh, founding catastrophe of the 20th century. And then we commemorate that then this weekend, 101 years later.
1: We'll talk about some of the activities taking place this weekend.
2: These days, uh, Veterans Day weekend, Memorial Day weekend, at the National World War One Museum and Memorial, we play a larger role where we honor all of those who serve. So this weekend is a great opportunity to come out. The weather will be good. And uh, to be able to then enjoy the exhibits, some of our genealogy research stations, the hands-on history activities. We'll have a Huey helicopter that actually flew and was shot out in Vietnam. And then a new exhibition, the Vietnam War, as you mentioned.
1: You have special pricing for this weekend, too.
2: We do. For military service personnel and veterans, it's free. AND HALF PRICE FOR EVERYBODY ELSE, FRIDAY THROUGH MONDAY.
1: Well, I ASK YOU ABOUT VETERANS, I asked YOU ABOUT THIS OFF THE AIR BECAUSE IT ALWAYS uh, SEEMS CURIOUS TO ME. Uh, YOU DON'T HAVE TO BE, IF YOU'RE A VETERAN, PRODUCING uh, DD-214 TO PROVE THAT YOU'RE A VETERAN.
2: NO, WE GIVE PEOPLE THE BENEFIT OF THE DOUBT. IT WOULD BE OFFENSIVE IF A VETERAN WERE TO SAY THAT uh, THEY'RE that they served and they didn't have ID, we wouldn't expect them to. We want to honour everybody's service.
1: You know, wars come to an end, but study of wars continues. I'm always fascinated, uh, there's still new research into World War One, is there not?
2: Yes, indeed, and it's very popular research. Some of these books sell hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies. Now, sometimes the further the distance that you have from war enables you, without the fog of war, to be able to analyse and understand the circumstances in a different way than if you're CLOSER TO THE EVENTS.
1: TALK ABOUT THIS VIETNAM EXHIBITION. 1945, THAT WAS BEFORE THE U.S. GOT INVOLVED.
2: YES, uh, IT WAS, AND THIS, uh, YOU KNOW, IT'S NOT UNDERSTOOD GENERALLY THAT THE VIETNAM WAR IS LINKED TO WORLD WAR I. THE FACT THAT 100,000 VIETNAMESE SERVED IN FRANCE AS IT WAS A FRENCH COLONY uh, HAD A PROFOUND EFFECT THEN AFTER THE WAR ON THE INDEPENDENCE MOVEMENTS. Uh, HALF OF THOSE 100,000 SERVED AS TROOPS learning uh, strategy, modern military techniques. The other half served in factories as laborers, learning uh, union organizing, learning industrialized uh, production. They came back. uh, Their relationship with the French was forever changed.
1: So on Veterans Day on Monday, what do you have planned?
2: So on Veterans Day, our 10 a.m. ceremony will be indoors, nice and warm. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Pella McDaniels is our speaker, a noted chiefs player, but also a professor of history at Emory University, who is an expert, acknowledged expert, in the area of African-American war service. And he'll be talking around the theme of homecoming, an important topic for veterans, including those who served in the Vietnam
1: War. One of the things I especially like about the facility... And I've been there a couple of times, and that's the introductory film, The Background to World War I. And I swear, if you changed a few names around right. and a few countries around, you could be describing the world as we know it today.
2: Yeah, there are ominous parallels to the world uh, that we live in today. It's argued that the world is more like the world of 1913. Than it's been in the past 106 years. What is the
1: hands on history segment?
2: The opportunity for people to handle artifacts that haven't been accessioned. They're not part of the museum's formal collection, but they're part of the educational resources to see gas masks and touch those other objects.
1: You also have music, I believe, from that era, because I've been there and listened to it. Right. Heard Al Josen singing some Uh, songs from the World War I era.
2: Sure. Uh, lots of uh, lots of really exciting activities throughout. Oh, the okay, if
1: somebody wants a little bit more information, we're about out of time. How do they get it? TheWorldWar.org. That's the best place to go. the TheWorldWar.org. All right, sir. Thank you very much. I'm sure you'll have a big turnout this weekend and on Monday. Thank you. Appreciate you coming in. That is Dr. Matt Naylor. He is president of the World War One Museum in Kansas City. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus. Michelle Watley is the founder of the Griot Group, a consulting firm. Attorney Laura McConwell is a former three-term mayor of Mission, Kansas. Joining us for the first time, Joni Wickham, former chief of staff to Mayor Sly James and co-founder of Wickham James Strategy and Solutions. And Patrick Tui is the senior fellow of municipal policy at the Show Me Institute, a free market think tank. Welcome to all of you, a special welcome to Joni. Thank you very much for joining us, hope you had a good time. All right, let's get rolling. Since the city council changed the name of the iconic boulevard, the Paseo, to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, efforts have been underway to undo the name change. Some felt the council's action violated city regulations, Those backing the change countered by noting that Kansas City was, perhaps, the only major city in the U.S. without some major sort of tribute to the slain civil rights leader. A group opposed to the change formed the Save the Paseo Committee, gathering enough signatures to force the issue to an election. It took place on Tuesday. I think we know the result, but I'll ask anyway. What was the outcome, Michelle, and what was your reaction to it?
0: Saving the Paseo uh, passed overwhelmingly at a rate of 70%. Um, And my reaction is mixed. I think that overall it's a lose-lose proposition. There is no real or clear winners in this situation. Uh, I Also, you know, there's research that's been done by Derek Alderman that essentially says that whenever any city tries to pass a street name for Martin Luther King Boulevard, there's always controversy. But usually it's local government that's the barrier to it. But in this case, it was the voters. I think what's at the tip of a larger iceberg of Dr. Martin Luther King in the street is a struggle for power, who gets to wield it, and how it's
3: wielded. Um, Well, well, Joni,
1: you were at City Hall when this was all begun. Uh, Why did the council take action without taking a look at the regulations?
3: Well, I think actually the council did look at the regulations, and it's important to go back in time and look at how this started. It started um, via the initiative petition process. And I think what we're seeing now is um, some unintended consequences of that process and what can happen when, um, under the previous um, administration, only about 1,700 signatures were required to put something before voters. there were some times that uh, those different um, uh, proposals came forward a little um, uh, not as thought out as perhaps they could be, so that there would be a result well, that Well, the first petition attempt
1: failed to generate enough signatures to right. force an election, so there was a second petition drive. Right. Do you think there will be a third by people who want to try the King name again?
3: Um, nothing would surprise me when it comes to our initiative petition process, but I do think that this community... Um, has uh, a lot of interest and passion about finding a way to honor um, Dr. Martin Luther King.
4: But it doesn't have to be a street, does it, Patrick? No, no, There already uh, there's a park in, in Kansas City that's named for uh, Dr. King. Uh, there are other ways to go about it. Uh, my frustration with this, uh, the whole issue, I think Reverend Vernon Howard's comments to the New York Times were uh, absolutely uh, uh, inappropriate.
1: I'm glad you made that reference because I happen to have them. And I will put them on the screen so you can all see what Dr. Reverend Dr. Vernon P. Howard Jr., president of the local chapter of the LCLC, told the New York Times. Shameful day for Kansas City. The vote set us decades back in the march toward racial justice and racial inclusion. Do you think that's fair, Laura?
5: Well, I don't. I I, I do have an issue with the process, and I find it interesting that if the process if if sidestepping a process supports the end that they people want, they want to sidestep the process and I think the the petition that came about in the seventy percent vote to restore it to the paseo was a reaction I think to that process and people being left out of the conversation and had they been everyone had been included with the conversation, who knows, but quite but, frankly, I always wondered why. Uh, you know, you've got Emanuel Cleaver Parkway and why that wasn't Dr. Martin Luther King
4: Parkway. So
1: Patrick, does this set us back uh, in terms of racial justice and racial inclusion?
4: I looked at the Kansas City Election Board's unofficial results. I hadn't seen them published anywhere else. Of the 11 majority black wards in Kansas City, Save the Paseo won six of them. And if you combine the vote total for all 11 wards, Save the Paseo, and again, moving the name back to the Paseo, one with fifty point five eight percent uh... i think the proponents of martin luther king uh, boulevard failed uh... repeatedly both in the petition process and in this campaign and uh... reverend howard's uh... uh... comments just seem to scapegoat other people
1: so what happens now what kind of uh... name location should there be if it's not going to be a street should it be a park a fountain what
0: i think the save the Paseo people and and campaign was concerned with the process, they should have gone after the process and not changing the street name. I actually agree with Reverend Howard that it does set us back. That along with a number of issues that have happened across this state um, only perpetuate that the city and the state is a place where racism lives and thrives. Uh, They didn't come up with a plan for how to honor Martin Luther King. If it wasn't going to be the street name, go after the process. What would have harmed Kansas City to have the street name? And yes, six of the 11 African-American wards voted for it, but their vote was not a vote um, against Martin Luther King or it wasn't race. A few of, and they it made was, it very
1: clear that it was not. It was not.
0: It was essentially a rebuke of black leadership. But, but on, the That's top, very
1: different. on the topic of racial inclusion, the mayor is an African-American. His predecessor was a two-term mayor, an African-American. The congressman has been there since 2004. Emanuel Cleaver is an African-American. He was a two-term mayor. And the county executive, as Frank White, is also an African-American. And there are many elected officials who serve on councils and boards. In Kansas City, Missouri, who are African Americans, maybe uh, we're set back in racial justice, but it's hard to think there's a lack of racial inclusion.
0: Well, we yeah. elected a black president, but it doesn't mean that racism has been eradicated no, the, or that progress. No, but with this
1: vote, I don't see how it sets back racial inclusion in Kansas. City.
0: I think it does because again, the voters again, if it was about process those campaigning against it could have campaigned against the process. How do you change the process and prevent this from happening in the future? If that's what that's about, that's what they should have campaigned on.
1: final thought? At the
3: end of the day, I think um, if the petitioners had actually engaged the people who lived along Paseo more, we might have had a different result and this conversation wouldn't have gotten this far. I agree
0: with that also. And that's where the rebuke from black voters comes from. It's
1: not the end of the day, but the end of the topic. (laughs) The dictionary defines tradition as a way of thinking, behaving, or doing something that has been used by the people in a particular group, family, society, etc., for a long time. It is clearly a tradition when fans do what is called the tomahawk chop at Chiefs games. It's gone on for decades, it has been publicly debated for decades, and still the tradition survives. Nonetheless, the Star's editorial board is troubled by the gesture, and once it's stopped, ASKING, AND I QUOTE, WHY CONTINUE THE CHANT IF IT OFFENDS EVEN A SINGLE NATIVE AMERICAN? I WONDER, WHAT ABOUT A MARRIED NATIVE AMERICAN? ANYWAY, LET'S START WITH THIS QUESTION. IF IT WERE THE GOAL, AND IT APPARENTLY IS NOT, IS THERE ANY WAY THE CHIEF'S OFFICIALS COULD STOP THE TOMAHAWK CHOP, LAURA?
5: YEAH, I DON'T THINK SO. Um, I, I, and I'VE BEEN, going, AS WE'VE BEEN think, CONTEMPLATING THIS TOPIC THIS WEEK, FANS, fans like it. I don't know that fans fans think about the noise in Arrowhead. They're thinking about cheering on and sending messages to the football players. I don't know. I mean, even if the Chiefs organization said we're not going to do it anymore, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how they're going to enforce it or how they stop it. I don't
1: think they could. Are they going to throw people out who uh, make noise yeah, and cheer? and I cheer think and- the
5: organization has been there, I, I don't think people wear native headdresses. They don't have face paint. There are a lot of things that the chiefs can can control that they have stopped doing. In a response, I don't know how I don't know how you I don't know how you stop this.
1: Patrick, let me ask you about this. The Star article said that the war drum that is used before the game has been blessed by Native Americans. How is the drum that would be used to be mark the beginning of a war? less offensive than the gesture of using a tomahawk in the war.
4: It's a silly standard. It's a distinction without meaning. I went back to the Washington Post survey of Native Americans in 2016 that found that 75 percent are not offended by the Washington Redskins and would not be offended if they themselves were called a Redskin. I think what we have in this case and and perhaps with the uh, SCLC and the Martin Luther King vote is we have people who represent themselves as speaking for a uh, ethnicity uh, and and they get upset about this or that. But when you actually go and talk to the people that they purportedly represent, you find that there's no problem. Joe Biden, for example, not Joe Biden, Ralph Northam in Virginia, right? Uh, There are pictures of him wearing blackface, but African-Americans in Virginia were opposed to him resigning.
1: Uh, Joni, I would bet you know a lot of people who go to Chiefs games and do the tomahawk chop. Do you think they're insensitive people?
3: Um, No, I think sometimes um, uh, our lack of perspective um, can come across as being um, ignorant. I think there's a difference in being ignorant and insensitive. Um, but to get back to your original point, I think the Chiefs have taken a lot of measures over the years, meeting with the Native American community, um, and and making sure that uh, we're as uh, welcoming and um, sensitive to Native American traditions as we can be. Um, to Patrick's point, uh, I think whenever you have um, a group. Um, uh, no one individual um, can speak for an entire group, and so you're not always going to be able to make every perspective um, within a community groups um, agree.
1: Yeah. Uh, Michelle, the story editorial says, uh, you know, stop even if one single uh, Native American is offended. If, if we applied that to everything else and stopped, if one person were offended, we wouldn't have Christmas. We wouldn't have Easter. We wouldn't have a lot of things, would we?
0: No, we wouldn't. Halloween. have Halloween? You wouldn't have a lot of things, but I think uh, with the larger narrative or the larger issues is essentially that as a people uh, it has been well documented that Native Americans find these rituals uh, as sports games very offensive um, and although... The
4: survey research says otherwise. That all- but, and that's but, consistent. but there's
0: research that's inconsistent to what you said. And so even it with Annenberg- Ralph Northam and blackface, I don't know personally many black people that would not be offended by seeing people wear blackface. And so- it's not
4: that. It's a matter of... Uh, the black voters in Virginia said we understand this was a bad thing but we don't think it, he should resign today. I think a, a, the population can be nuanced and can understand certain things. And. American, but it doesn't Native mean Americans, they weren't
0: offended by it. It doesn't mean that for, that, that wasn't a problem, but right? They, maybe can, they don't think he should have resigned, but it doesn't mean right. that it wasn't offensive. And Native Americans, the research has also shown, a number of Native Americans are quoted as saying that these type of practices are offensive. Right. That they're so that they make caricatures of what's So is it a thirty
4: percent? Is it one person? The point is, I think Native can't Americans can't
0: it. Why are we continuing that essentially fly in the face of people's cultures? Because if your or standard is one person. Your types. standard
4: is if one person is offended, then but you change a,
0: behavior. But that's not how we operate in real life. I think that's a very
4: far departure. For. Laura, but, is it possible the people
1: who do this at the games are just having fun?
5: Oh, I think they're having fun, and a lot of them. I mean, it mean nothing by it other than we hope the team <laughs> so, wins. So yeah, they want the Chiefs to win. Their whole thing is yeah, let's go, let's you know, let's win, and. It, and it's grown. I have. I don't go to a lot of chief schemes now. I used to go to a lot, and it seems like in the past ten years, the the the, the uh, Tomahawk Chop has really grown. I, so.
1: Patrick, you think this is an issue that the Star's editorial board should have taken so seriously and done a column about?
4: I, I don't know what motivates them. I think well. sometimes newspapers have to have to have a column whether they have something to say or not. And, for sure and- not. I do understand that. So, so do people on television it's a
5: conversation, you know, but I don't see, I'm not sure what the solution is.
1: All right. We'll press on to something else. Once again, we encounter one of those on the one hand. Yes. But on the other hand, no situations in Kansas city, Missouri. THE YES IS A LOUD CHEER FOR THE U.S. DEPARTMENT OF AGRICULTURE, MOVING 500 WORKERS TO 805 PENNSYLVANIA AVENUE IN DOWNTOWN KANSAS CITY, MISSOURI. THINK OF ALL THAT NEW ACTIVITY, ALL THE NEW EARNINGS TAXPAYERS. THE NO PART DEALS WITH WHAT IT TAKES TO GET THE DEAL FOR KANSAS CITY. IT APPEARS THE CITY WILL OFFER UP TO 6 MILLION IN TAX BREAKS, AND THE STATE THROUGH PORT KC WILL PROVIDE ALMOST 20 MILLION IN TAX RELIEF FOR 15 YEARS. So it looks like we have city and state governments providing tax relief to the biggest taxer of all, the federal government. So should we react to this with cheers or jeers, praise or scorn? I'm going to ask Patrick and then Joni, but let me add this, this note. A city council committee has now moved to make it $1.4 million The decision still rests with the full city council. But
4: nonetheless, cheers or jeers, praise or scorn. So it's great that the USDA is moving here. Simply by moving out of Washington, D.C. to Kansas City, which is a much cheaper market, they will save $300 million. The idea that they sought and that Kansas City and Missouri may give taxpayer subsidies is outrageous. So it's a win, but we shouldn't be paying as much for it as we are. And I am uh, happy that the council is looking to cap uh, the amount of exposure that Kansas City taxpayers will have. Uh, Joni,
1: what's your reaction to
4: this?
3: I think this is a great thing for the whole region of Kansas City. We have a long history um, of being a uh, leader in life sciences, and I think this relocation is going to be great for that. Um, you also have to operate when you're talking about economic development in the reality, and the reality is. Um, Uh, our um, competition, places like the Raleigh-Durham area, Indianapolis, Denver, places like that, um, they play to win. And if we don't do that, then we're going to find ourselves left Uh, behind. Let me
1: follow up with you. Some say that this move of 500 people to Kansas City by the Trump administration is an attack on science.
3: Do you believe that? Um, I can't confess to have a lot of deep relationships in the Trump administration. I,
1: I'm spoiled. Um,
3: I know. <laughs> um, but what I do know, um, to my previous point, is that um, we have tremendous life science assets and um, scientists and expertise here. So I think this is a natural place for the U.S. So you don't
1: see it as an attack on science by the Trump administration? Is that right?
3: Um, you know, I, I can't. Uh, pretend to know uh, what the Trump administration is doing. No, but by moving
1: people to Kansas City and out of Washington, meaning some of the people in Washington refuse to move to Kansas City, they can't possibly live here. Uh, means there will be people hired with lesser degree of uh, experience and knowledge. Do you think that's true, that the people here won't be sufficiently qualified?
3: Absolutely not. Um, I spent the past eight years of my career helping um, cheerlead for Kansas City, and I know that we have a lot of talent here, top talent. Um, and I just think the USDA, USDA move is going to be great for the entire Laura,
1: weekend. is this congruent with the new mayor and city council talking about uh, stopping these kinds of tax breaks in Kansas City?
5: Well, I must admit, I'm not intimately familiar with all of their decision making. And if some of the support that they're giving them that they've capped is to help make infrastructure improvements to support the building for those types of workers downtown, then I get that because it's not like moving into a green field. But I absolutely think this is great for our region. We are a bioscience capital of the world. When you look at our the bioscience breadth, you look at what's been going on at Kansas State University, we're going to have fabulous people that are going to be able to work and move the USDA forward.
1: Michelle, how does Port KC get into this? We have John Stevens, the president and CEO on the program as a panelist from time to time. Mm-hmm. How is Port KC involved in this deal?
0: because they stand to benefit from this deal. <laughs> and spend money and, and provide and, tax money. That's right. They uh, they can charge an administrative fee of up to 20%. And so that was originally going to be on the $6 million. Now that that's been reduced, that 20% is also reduced. Um, so it would be interesting to see how that impacts their plans. But that's how they're involved.
1: Port KC is under the jurisdiction of the state and has the ability to reduce taxes when it so chooses, and to issue bonds when it so chooses, or when the board of directors choose. Anyway, now it is time for Roast and Toast, where the Ruckheads have 30 (laughs) seconds each to explain, disdain, or refrain. We hope they don't refrain. We start with Patrick.
4: Well, I am very happy uh, this week to toast the Kansas City Tax Increment Financing Commission, the TIF Commission, for saying no to Whitney Kerr's awful a uh, Bravo Hotel idea downtown. Uh, the TIF commission needs to say no a lot more if it wants to get better deals, and uh, this is a good sign for everyone. Laura.
5: So I'm going to toast the Shawnee Mission School District Education Foundation. Uh, they supported a scholarship Shawnee Mission, which offers academic scholarships to students who had opted into a program, and over $733 million of scholarships have been offered to students, uh, seniors in Shawnee Mission High Schools.
1: Joni, this is the fun part, and now it's your turn.
3: Yeah. I have a toast, and uh, my toast is going to be for a recently elected Shawnee Mission uh, school board candidate, Jessica Embry. Uh, Jessica was able to defeat an incumbent with 76% of the vote, um, and I think she has uh, a lot of leadership potential, and she's someone to watch.
1: All right, Michelle, up to you.
3: I want to
0: raise a toast to the late Senator Yvonne Wilson, who transitioned um, in October of this year. She was a member of both chambers of the Missouri Legislature and was a staunch advocate for early childhood and childhood education. Um, we are definitely at a loss to not have her around anymore, but we were lucky to have her for the years that we had her. She was the first African American to serve as a president for the Missouri uh, Elementary School. Um, Principals Association. So uh, just a toast to Senator Wilson. I was lucky to have her as a mentor of Soro Delta Sigma Theta and her service on Shirley's Kitchen Cabinet. We look forward to uh, keeping your legacy alive as the catalyst of change.
1: Did a good job with you. Yeah. yeah right. I'd like to think so. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> and finally, it is a victory for columnist Steve Rose, who is well known to Rutgers viewers he has now received about $25,000 in legal fees from State Senator Jim Denning after Denning's suit against Rose and the Star for defamation was thrown out by a Johnson County judge. The Star reports the judge's ruling came as a result of the Kansas Public Speech Protection Act, a law passed with Senator Denning's vote in 2016. So, despite adversity, Steve Rose. <laughs> I knew you'd like that. And that's Ruckus for this week. We're back next Thursday at 7. Now for the Ruckus and the crew, Mike Shannon saying thanks very much for watching and good night.